0: Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, Annie Highwater, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast, along with the learning modules and discussion blog, in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air.
1: So I had a mom, I had a mom, I think I I mentioned, she she worked with an interventionist who told her after she was done that she shouldn't speak to her daughter unless it was about treatment. Mm. And she had just lost her own mother, the girl's grandmother, and it was grief and... A terrible situation the girl is in, the young woman is in, and mom was told not to talk.
2: I think it's probably some of the worst advice. That's, I guess, it's an interventionist, right? Not a therapist, but I think it's one of the worst possible advice that you could give to a family member, period. I think that it's already a battle. For family members to even understand the possible concept of acceptance, of accepting this person for what they're experiencing and what they're going through and witnessing it and understanding that people need connection and support. And also, I think it's horrible advice from the interventionist because basically what the interventionist is also asking that family member to do is to torture yourself. Go ahead and torture yourself with not being connected to the loved one. I'm just going by as a mom, you you would be asking me to separate myself completely from someone I gave birth to. (laughs) You're asking me to do something that is just ridiculous. I'm not going to do it. So I think personally, I think it's one of the worst pieces of advice or recommendation that anybody could could give.
3: It's also extreme. There's so many of those advice giving people that say, cut them out, kick them out, don't talk to them. And there's there are these huge statements that where you don't get to process what that actually means, which is what you're saying, Laurie. It's like, okay, great. I don't talk to them anymore. And then I have to spend every waking moment tortured about what's happening to that person. So it looks like you're doing this great thing for the other person, but how does it work for them? Why is that the advice? And then also, does it work for me to do something like that? So I, I actually think that with all of these things, the most important question is, Let's assess the impact. Okay, you don't want to talk to the person. Why? What's the point of that? What are you trying to accomplish? What do you want to have happen with that? And I actually think what we're asking people to do is a more discerning process, which is what kind of talk are we having with that person? What kind of resources are we offering the person? What kind of attention are we giving to this person? So it's much more subtle. But it's much more effective because that's the behavioral change piece. It's like, we're not, if they're yelling at us, we don't have to talk to them. If they're behaving terribly, we don't need to talk to them at that moment. But then you don't catch these other moments of positivity where that's the part that you want to build up because you miss everything. It's the throwing the baby out with the bathwater.
2: I think that ask is actually asking someone to be extremely manipulative. You're asking me to be extremely manipulative with my loved one. The only condition under which I will talk to you is if it's a discussion about treatment. So I want you to do what I want you to do. And if you don't do it, I'm going to withhold my love and connection. And no, I'm going to go and find the positive things that my loved one is doing And I'm gonna talk to them about that. You're missing huge opportunities here by asking someone to do that.
1: That was the point I was gonna make. It's that in craft, we do ask you to step back and allow natural consequences in the day, in the moment. It can be in the morning and you could have a whole different afternoon where they've stopped. The last time they smoked pot was nine in the morning. It's now five in the evening and they're not smoking. Then you turn around and, and and you're warm and familial and loving and connected. If you're going to remove yourself and remove your connection, you're going to do it as a result of what you're seeing in the moment, not some absurd period of time that's indefinite. I've heard this from parents for whom this has worked, this sort of tough love. We had to throw him out. We had no contact with him. And six months later, he landed on our doorstep wanting treatment, and they call that a success. And I'm going, wow, six months out there, six months missing all the little opportunities that you're mentioning, Lori, six months of missing the encouragement for non-use. Sure, they may still use for six months, but your relationship to them has to be one of partnering and respect and maintaining connection overall. Otherwise, they're out there with without any help, unless they're willing to walk in someplace and hopefully get some help. But ideally, if you're a family member and you have the connection and the willingness to work on this, it's the opposite. You want to stay connected. And you want to, even if it's a bad time for your loved one, you you might send a text that says, you know, thinking of you today, love mom, neutral texts, right? And that's it.
2: So basically what you're saying is that six months could have been an opportunity and maybe it would have been sooner rather than six months later. It could have been three months. And I also, and, you know, I put it in quotes, the tough love, kick them out, don't have anything to do with them. When there's success there, I often feel like, one, it's few and far between. It's really few and far between. But also, I feel like it's just reinforcing. that i should respond negatively or reinforcing my my own negative behavior does that make sense it's kind of like like what when we talked before about you know my pacing if my loved one goes off and leaves and turns his phone off and i pace and i'm up all night and i'm calling the police and i'm driving around town and i'm digging for proof and i'm you know trying to find him and first thing in the morning he comes walking through the door and i find relief I got a reinforcement that, oh, this is what I should do every single time, and he'll come walking through the door in the morning. And I feel like tough love, this kick him out, anytime it pays off like that, it's almost like reinforcement. Oh, this is what I need to do. I need to completely disconnect. I also think that that kind of disconnection can be a protective piece for the person not the loved one with substance use disorder, but for the family member. Like, I really can't handle any more of this right now.
1: I had a mom say, I'm moving to Florida, that's it. (laughs) And that's not the first time I've heard a parent say, that's it, I'm gone. And they're the ones ready to leave, uproot themselves and leave to get away from a loved one who's so chronically debilitating to themselves and, and to you.
3: And this is not to say that if somebody is flagrantly abusing in your house, that you have to have them continue to live with you. That's not what we're saying. We're saying, and we had this discussion this week in the group, and I was like, very clear, you do not have that conversation about the person leaving your house unless you actually can follow through with it. So that's the other thing. It's like You need to build to this because there will come a moment when you're like, all right, this is not working out. You need to leave because it's not working out for me. You don't have to be angry about it. You just have to let the person know that because they're using that's not working for you. So again, it's not this. If you do this, you could stay, blah, blah, blah. It's more like, nah, this is not working out. You can, you have the choice to continue to use, but it's not working for you to be using when you're living with us. So you need to go. And the other thing about that is everything goes in waves. I had just had this conversation with my daughter who has lots of emotions and feelings, and she can be very reactive. And she said to me this this morning, she's like, I had pain yesterday. And one of the things I noticed is I had pain, and then it went away. And I was like, exactly. Interesting. And she's somebody who's like, the pain is I have pain all the time. But that's the lesson for all of us is that nothing is constant, nothing. Even if somebody is messily abusing and doing all kinds of horrible things, there are these tiny moments of not doing that. Same thing with pain. If you have, you could have chronic pain, but you are going to have these moments when you do not have pain. Okay. And so I feel like that's the lesson that we're trying to, to deal with here with, with the craft model is you look for the moments of not pain of no pain, and that's when you walk in. And then you try to make that bigger and that's what you're putting your attention on. So that actually has more of a presence than, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, this is too much. And as you start to look for it, you find it more because that becomes, as I like to call it, the positivity detective. If you're a positivity detective, you're looking all the time for what's good. It's a hell of a lot of work. It's a lot harder to do than to find the negative, but it's there and your job is to find it.
2: It's to look for the positivity, right? Look for those positive things, moments, whatever it is. But it's also um, what we keep saying over and over and over again. If you're awfulizing and that's the, I can't live with this. I can't do this anymore. This is just so horrible. Like I'm hopeless. If you're doing that, then you're in the cycle of there's an event that happened. There's thoughts, there's feelings, take a break. That's the moment when you need to take care of yourself and you know it could be as simple as going and taking a shower and just getting dressed or it could be i need to meditate or it could be i need to allow these awful feelings to just kind of wash over me for a little while but i need to i need to get space from the problem it could be a day it could be an hour it could be a week whatever it is taking that break and then thinking you got you to talk about first thought second thought Okay, now I'm going to start trying to introduce alternative thoughts and alternative ideas. And I'm going to dig into my toolbox and pull out some craft skills. Hey, I got a lot of craft skills. Why am I not using them? Why am I being reactive? It's just a way to kind of calm yourself down, get yourself back to where you were before, Do some healing because the healthier that we are as caretakers, the better able we are to address the situation. I don't want to say direct our loved ones, but address the situation in a more positive way because they might not respond the way you want them to.
1: And awfulizing is just one way where you are taking a fact, your son is not home tonight, and you're going to the worst place possible with it, right? So you're taking a not a good fact. It's You're not going to feel good about your son not being home, but you're going to make it a lot worse because you're going to take it to the extreme. Module seven on our site does a little brief uh, review of cognitive behavior therapy, which is what we've been talking about with the one thought, two thoughts, and, and the distortions of our thinking towards the negative. And if you visit the site and look at module seven, you'll see how... What other ways are popular in terms of distorting our feelings, our and our thoughts um, towards the negative, which is human to do, but it's important, like Laurie's saying, to catch it, say, "Oh, I'm awfulizing," and sit back and let it go. The other thing I wanted to mention earlier too was the, you know, for for listeners who aren't familiar with craft, we're teaching you skills that over eight to ten weeks will give you the ability to make a request for treatment or make a request for psychiatric care make, make a request for whatever you feel is needed with some options for them right so all these little things sound like little things and you're all thinking how is how in the hell is that going to get my loved one abstinent? And the thing is, you're not trying to get your loved one abstinent. You're trying to get your loved one to plug into services and activities and healthy behaviors that push away the the use and that leads them to want to abstain or to stop and enter recovery. That's what we're doing in these eight to 10 weeks. And so it takes a few weeks for us to get the, the language, the communication, the, that calmness, our own peace of mind back as we try this. But remember, you can go get a professional intervention and it'll, they'll charge, I don't know, 3 $4,000. It'll be one shot and your loved one will be helicoptered out to treatment, but you may need this again and again and again. And you can't afford that every time. And it's not necessary. A very small little intervention around the table, once you've created that bridge and that connection, everything's softer. People admit things they've never admitted before. They, they agree. So it's a whole different approach, a, a much more quiet, loving approach. I'm working with a family now and they can't get it. Well, so when do you confront them? When do you confront them? I mean, he must have asked me that five times in the hour. I'm sorry. Did I miss it? Where did you confront them and all this? I said, I haven't confronted him. I'm asking his mother to take him, the dog, and visit in the park and keep it light. And if he's looking good, to pull out a sandwich and stay a few hours, right? Just doing that for, well, they gave me seven days because he's he's homeless in seven days. And so the whole family's worried about housing. And I'm saying, no, don't worry about housing. Let's worry about the methamphetamine. And that's a different, it is different. That is an intervention that we're doing. We're headed for that methamphetamine, but we're getting there by these wonderful communication skills and little behavioral skills and little responses to your loved one that aren't reactive, that aren't mean, that aren't vindictive, that aren't punishing, you know, but that appreciate that your loved one is, is in pain and you're willing to connect with them. And I think, I
2: think that advice or that, it sounds like it's more of an ultimatum from the interventionist to the family member It just forces everybody to look at the individual as only their illness. And that's all I will talk to you about is your illness and just missing the whole person, missing the wonderful pieces of that person because they exist, because they're in there. you know, when I'm working with families, I'm constantly saying, even when they're awfulizing and, you know, they can't take it anymore. And, okay, well, let's look at some of the positive things in here. He or she did turn to you and told you that, I don't know, they were using, they told you what they were using. This is an opportunity to tap into that right away and say, you know what, thank you for sharing with me. And I love the honesty. Okay. Do you have a plan? Great opportunity to have a little bit of an intervention there to understand that it's a difficult thing with this, what your loved one is trying to do. And they're not just their illness.
3: It's the same way. Like if somebody's saying to you, I hate my life, I'm terrible you know i can't stop doing this i wanted more than this and i can't cuz those conversations happen but if you shut them off that doesn't happen cuz they're already assuming that you're thinking that and those conversations are absolute moments of possibility because then it's like oh so you you're feeling miserable right now tell me more and then you just have the person keep talking you know, because that's all therapy is. If you walk into a therapy office, the person's not going to say, okay, you have a problem, you need to stop, what are you going to do? That's not therapy. And you know, as a therapist, the most important thing to me is the relationship. Because if I'm working on the relationship, then I'm expanding the possibilities. Um, Because then the person has trust for me and feels comfortable for me and with me and feels safe. And that's all that we're asking the loved ones to do is create that environment of safety and openness. And I could tell you anything because then you're there for the possibilities when they're like, okay, I've had enough. They're not coming in and stopping because, the, and that's the other thing. This is a really good moment for this If you send the person to treatment and therapy, they're not going to walk in and miraculously stop doing what they do. So stop putting that kind of pressure on treatment. It does not work that way. I'm sorry to say, I wish I was that good where you walk into my office and you're fine. But that begins the process of hopefully the person working on themselves, which is not fast.
2: If you think about it, if that worked, if that worked, There would be no substance use disorder.
3: Right, exactly.
2: People would just walk in, get treatment, and walk out, and they'd be fine.
3: Ten minutes. Ten minutes, it's over.
2: Right. Yeah, we're good.
3: (laughs) You walked in the door. It's like fast food. You walked in, you got clean. No, 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 no. It's like, and I I always used to, to joke around because- I felt like I was the only substance abuse specialist that was allowing people to come even when they were using, Mm -hmm. because I felt like there were so many people that were like, well, I'm not going to see you if you continue to use. Well, then you're not doing treatment. My job is to allow you to come in and look at what's going on with yourself when you're doing this and see what we could do to shift it. So, and I'm really glad that we're talking this because I always feel like the discussion about treatment is like the person goes to treatment and then everything changes and they're fine. (laughs) And that has not been my experience.
2: Yeah. And I think we need to have a deeper discussion in another podcast on that. I really, I think that's another topic that we could really get into because that's a, that's a dance. That's a struggle with family members, the treatment industry and this idea, this concept of being abstinent within 30 days, you know, at 20 years old or, oh my, that's a tough, tough thing to fulfill.
3: Somebody said this in one of the groups where we were talking about how It when somebody does go to treatment, really what you're hoping for is that seeds are getting planted, you know, and we all know that people go in and out of treatment. So I feel like, okay, we have an apple orchard possibility here, but you're planting seeds. And then the hope is that one day at the right moment, there's enough material there to create an abstinent and recovering lifestyle. And again, even when you get clean, that is just the beginning of the work because then it's like, okay, as we like to say, there, there's abstinence, which is the not doing, the absence of the behavior, which doesn't do anything for that person. All that does is create a hole. And the work is taking this kind of working on yourself, looking at yourself, finding out what gives you meaning, creating new habits, connection. Um, really looking at what got you there in the first place and healing those wounded places and also taking self-medication out of your hands and looking at, you know, what do I need to do to be healing myself, whether it's with getting medication, real medication, prescribed medication that you take as prescribed by the way, or getting new tools that allow you to address those issues
2: So you know what, maybe next week, um, maybe I could do my activity with both you and Dominique in the next podcast. And we can kind of give an example of what it's like, one, to be a family member and have a loved one come home from a uh, treatment and what, what it's like for the individual. I'd love to do this activity with you that I do with a lot of family members. Dominique has seen me do it, but I think it would make for a really, actually a really good podcast and would help listeners kind of understand this dynamic and why it is so many treatment facilities are like, concerned when a loved one's going home and why a family member might be a trigger. Uh, Kayla, why don't you summarize what we discussed this week?
3: Okay. That's an interesting question. So, cause we were in many places. So I think what I would say is that when we talk about the craft model, what we are talking about is a spectrum of shift and change and not making any quick Fast and extreme moves. And that what this process is about is learning subtlety, noticing subtlety, noticing the tiny differences and energy changes where you could step in. And also know that all of this is a, a process that is not, does not happen in one moment and it's over, but that you're engaging in a really a lifetime process of shifting and changing. And that's the hope that you have with your loved one is that as you change, you're helping them make the microscopic shifts as well by you changing your part of the dynamic.
2: Sounds good. Thank you. Thank Thank you you so much, Dominique. Thank you, Kayla.
0: Have a great week. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you.